you are in awe of God. I am, he, he never ceases to amaze me. Isn't that true of God? I should hear a few more amens than that out there, right? He never ceases to amaze me. And uh, just to think of what, what he has done for us. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, we find uh, that, that God gave them a series of blessings and curses and then told them that the people had the choice to choose which one. That seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Which would you rather have, blessings or curses? Right? Of course, we'd want blessings. And he lays out these blessings, and, and then he lays out these curses and said that the difference between the two was, was the choice that they made whether they wanted to obey the law of God or disobey the law of God. If they obeyed the law of God, they would receive all of these blessings. If they disobeyed the, God, the word of God and the law of God, then they would receive all of the lists of curses. Then as we come to the book of Joshua and then later on in the book of Judges, we actually see those principles of the book of, the book of Deuteronomy played out in real life. And we see if, if there's obedience, we see blessing. When there's disobedience, we see curses. The book of Joshua is very positive in nature, and we see more obedience than disobedience, so we see all sorts of blessings, and we're going to see that today. The book of Judges is the low point of Israel's history, and we see that when you get to the book of Judges, uh, we see that principle of disobedience bringing curses, and, uh, and we see that cycle of sin multiple times. Well, as we come to uh, the journey with Joshua now, we see how God has been, been taking him on a journey of faith showing him how to be put into a position where God is free to bless. How to become an obedient person so that God can give him the blessings. And we've, we've seen that happen through the book of Joshua. And this we're, we're really coming to the climax of that story where we see Joshua and the people of Israel have gone through and they've learned the lessons of faith. They've learned what it means to be courageous. They, they've learned what it means to put their trust in God. They've learned how to avoid cowardice. They've learned how to avoid conceit. And last week, we talked about the lesson of keeping your promises. It's the apex, really, of this, of this journey is when, when people have come to the point, the God's people have come to the point where they can say, we are going to even keep our vows because God keeps his vows with us. We're going to keep our vows with other people. And we see that lesson learned. That's why we learned last week, don't make a hasty vow. Remember, keep your promises even if things are difficult. When we come to Joshua chapter 10, we see what they said in chapter 9 is going to be put to the test. Because at the end of chapter 9, the people of Israel, Joshua included, they decided we're going to keep our vows. And, and uh, you remember the story, right? Uh, the Gibeonites, uh, the Gibeonites, lived in a town very close to where they were. God had said very clearly, do not make a treaty with anyone that lives inside the land. The Gibeonites, though, saw what God had done to, to Jericho. They saw what God had done to Ai, and they feared the Lord. That was, their positive, that was a positive move. On the negative side, instead of, instead of accepting the Lord as their Lord and just assimilating themselves right into Israel, they deceived the Israelites, pretended like they were from a far-off country. They brought moldy bread as if they had traveled a long ways, and they lied to Joshua, and they lied to the people of Israel and said, would you make a treaty with us? Because we're not from around here. And the Israelites didn't learn their lesson. They, they, didn't, they didn't do their homework. They didn't follow through. And so they believed them, and they made that vow with the Gibeonites. The, the Israelites, once they realized that the Gibeonites weren't who they said they were, 
went and they wanted to attack them. And the leaders came by and they said, no, we've made a commitment. And as it says in Leviticus 5, as it says in Numbers 20, as it says multiple times, if we make a vow in haste, or even thoughtlessly, we still have to keep it. And we see that in words in chapter 9. Remember that, right? Now we come to chapter 10, and we see those words put to the test. And let's read verses 1 and 2 of Joshua chapter 10. It says, Now it came to pass, when Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how, how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace uh, with, the Israelite, with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. So if we uh, take this little picture of, of Israel, you can see in the, in the upper, uh, upper left-hand side, that's the, the Mediterranean Sea. And then you see that the sea at the top, that's the Sea of Galilee. You can follow the river straight down from there to the Dead Sea. And this is what we call Israel today. When we find when they crossed the Red Sea, uh, the first town that they attacked was Jericho. To give, just to give a general idea where we're at. After that, not too far away, was the town of Ai. And then the town of Gibeon, even though they didn't fight the Gibeonites, was also close by. And you can see how Israel, Israel is starting to kind of divide and conquer. You see that line make, coming in here? They're coming right in the middle of the country, and they're, they're dividing. And then you have Jerusalem, which is located right here. Now, Jerusalem, by the way, this was not controlled by the people of God at this point, right? And Adoni Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, said, wait, I don't like what's going on here. I mean, when Jericho fell, that was a pretty small town. Ai, that was a pretty, pretty good sized town, a little bit better, still not huge. But Gibeon, they caved in, and Gibeon was a strong place. They had some mighty men there, and here Jerusalem saying, "This is not, this isn't, this isn't going well for us." So you can understand why, uh, why this is, why he felt that way. So this is getting a little close to home. So let's continue to read in verse uh, verses three through five. See what. Uh, how the story continues from there. Therefore, Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up they and all their armies and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. So we have Jerusalem, and he starts to uh, realize this, is, this isn't good. So he gathers together people from Hebron, people from Jarmuth, the people from uh, Lachish, and the people from Eglon. There it is. And he, he, he pulls basically all of the kingdoms of the north, or of the south, and says, we've got a man together. Remember, we read about this at the beginning of chapter 9. We're coming back to this now. And, uh, and, we, and we see them banding together. And we have five major armies coming together. So this is the original battle of the five armies, right? You've heard of that, some of you? From the Hobbit movie, right? You'll have to forgive me for the puns, but it's a hard Hobbit to break. So, and, uh, so, yeah, so this is the original battle of five armies. But as you read the story, you understand, this is coming together 
where all of a sudden, all of the enemies of God are coming together to fight against God's people. But one thing that I find interesting, did they go and attack Joshua? No. Who did they attack? Gibeon. And I find that interesting. So these, these men banded together, but they didn't go against the people of God because there's still some level of fear. Like, this God that's on their side, there's, you don't want to fight him. However, they, they have this mentality that if we fight together, we can still do this. We can win if we fight together. And so one thing you cannot allow is what? When one person sides with the with the opposite team. When one person goes to the other team. Imagine, if, for example, if uh, you had a, some kind of battle and it was five guys versus five guys. When one person loses, then that changes the, the odds by one, right? But when one person switches size, it actually changes it by two. Does that make sense? Because, uh, for example, if you have five on five, one person switches sides, now you have six on four. That's a difference of two. And so you cannot allow this. Humanly speaking, it makes sense. And so you've got all of, the, all of the armies to the north that they would love to include in this battle so they can get rid of the Israelites once and for all. And their pesky God, from their perspective. Right? You can get rid of them. But if people start trading sides, ooh, then you never know how things are going to go. So they come up together and they, uh, they decide to attack the city of Gibeon. That's the test. That's the real test. Then we come to verse 6. Let's read verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So now Joshua receives word from the Gibeonites. Let me ask you for a second. How would you feel if you were Joshua in this moment. Think about that for a second. Now, you, you've been able to defeat one city at a time so far. But remember, who did all the work with, in Jericho? God did. Who, did. who really won the battle in Ai? God did. And so they, there's not a lot of self-confidence in that, hey, we're this group of farmers who've been, been uh, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Yeah, I think we can take on all of the armies at once take on five armies at once. But it's not only that. Who's asking for the help? These are the same people that we we had to agree to keep a promise with them, but they deceived us to make the promise in the first place. It's very easy to say, you know what, I'm going to keep my promise. It's, it's a whole other thing to say, I'm going to put this into action. Isn't that true? Oh, it's very easy. In fact, you see it in, in weddings all the time. You see, see weddings where they come together and they make all sorts of vows, right? It's more difficult to keep those vows than it is to speak those vows, isn't it? Right. And, and so here we have an opportunity. It's a test. This is the test. And this test only has one question. And if the Israelites pass this test, they're going to have blessing. They've passed the other tests now. This is the last test. They have, if they pass this, God's going to do some amazing things. Supernatural things. If they fail this test, then it's back to the drawing board. What's the test? One question. Are you going to keep your promise, even if it comes at a great cost? Are you going to keep your promise even when it hurts? Even when it hurts. 
Well, let's look and see what they did. Let's read verses 7 and 8. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. What I find interesting here is what we don't see in the verse. Actually, what we do see in the verse is that Joshua just got up and he left. What we don't see in the verse is we don't see anyone complaining. We don't see anyone even thinking about it because they've made their decision already. We talked about that over New Year's. Call it a resolution, right? What's a resolution? It's when you make a decision in the present about how you're going to behave in the future. So that way, you're not making the decision during the temptation, but when the temptation comes, you already have your decision made up. And that is what we see in the people of Israel in this passage. We see that they've already made that decision that, okay, we are going, we, we are going to make a treaty with them because we're going to keep our word. And then it's put to the test immediately, and not a single person asks a question, not a single person revolts. You don't see it saying anything about, well, some of the men of valor decided not to go. It says, all of the men of valor went. All of the fighters went. No questions asked. They kept their vow. I don't know about you, but that, that deserves an amen. Right? That's an exciting thing. And you see that they kept their vows. They've made it to this the final lesson. And so we can't wait to read what comes next. What I think is interesting is what we find next is the promise. Let me read it again in verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So as we see, as we see that promise in, in chapter 10, verse 8, it really has three parts to that promise, doesn't it? First part, do not fear. You can have courage now. Why? They've just passed the test, and God says, Now there's no reason to fear. If you don't pass the test, is it okay to fear? It's wise to fear, Right? In fact, fear can be a very healthy thing, right? In fact, I, I, uh, I love to go rock climbing, and I take friends rock climbing whenever I get a chance. And, and I remember asking one person to go, and he says, I, I don't think I can go because I'm afraid of heights. And I, said, and I told him, I wouldn't take you if you weren't afraid of heights. Because if you're not afraid of heights, rock climbing is the most dangerous thing you can do, right? But if you are afraid of heights, it makes, it makes sure you follow the procedures, you, put, you tie the ropes right, you double-check everything. Fear of heights is a, is a very good thing. Um, and, and so fear is not a bad thing if you're in the wrong position. Now he's saying you don't need fear because you're in the right position. You, can, you don't have to fear anymore. You've obeyed and you've passed the test. Don't fear anymore. The second part says, I have delivered them. Reminding that really it's not you doing the battle anyway. It's God doing the battle. Right? Reminding them of some of the lessons that they've had in the last thing, he says, they will not stand against you. By the way, does any of this sound familiar? Does this promise sound familiar? I think it does. In fact, if you keep a finger here in, uh, in chapter 10, let's go back to chapter 1 for a moment. The very beginning, the first nine verses, first nine verses of the book, we read this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... It came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, uh, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. As I said to Moses, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, 
All the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. When you read that, we, we find all of the things that we find in the promise to Joshua in chapter 10, we find really given all the way back in chapter 1. He told him not to fear, but it, it, he told him not to fear as well in, uh, in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When the Lord is with us, we're on his side, we pass the test. No need for fear. He said uh, in chapter 10 that he, he was the one delivering them. We find that the exact same thing. And uh, in verse 3, look at verse 3, where it says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Same words. I've given this to you. It's a gift. It's not something you even have to earn. And as he said in chapter 10 about not being able to stand, we find the exact same thing in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And so we see this promise given in its seed form in chapter 1, and then we see it being lived out in chapter 10. And see that there is no fear. No one's questioning. They're just saying, these are our giving events. They're ours. We made a treaty with them, so here we go. Oh, but it's five armies. In fact, it's the entire southern part of the promised land. Call, all coming at once. Okay. Bring them on. Why? Because they understood what real courage meant at this point. They passed the test. Notice, too, in chapter 1, there was one stipulation. We read it in verse 7. I'll start in verse 6, catch the context. Be, be strong and of good courage, for this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to, to do according to all the law which my servant Moses commanded you. What was the stipulation? In, uh, in, in verses 7 and 8, the stipulation was simple. You had to observe and obey everything that's written in the law. When there's obedience, like Deuteronomy said, there's a blessing. When there's disobedience, there's curses. When you obey, if you pass the test, God's going to do some amazing things. God is going to do great things. We see that given, it, that, that stipulation given in chapter 1, we find it, uh, we find it answered, we, we see it observed back in Joshua chapter 10. So let's go back to chapter 10, verse 7, when it says, So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people who were with him, and all the mighty men of valor. That's the obedience. They did it. They did it. And the result is what we get to in verse 9. Verse 9 and 10, we read, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with the great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. 
God provides victory. By the way, it gets the, the, the story right here in, a, in the, the short version of the story and then tells you the long version of the story. That's typical Hebrew uh, literary structure. And so in, in short form, this is what the story is. God delivered them. He wiped them out in Gibeon. He chased them down all the way to the southern end of the promised land. As long as they were in the promised land, guess what? Everything one of them fell. Isn't that amazing? We sang about the amazing nature of God. We, we, we sang about that today. And here we see it lived out in real life. We see it lived. And uh, that's the short version of the story. What it boils down to is, uh, is something that we read in, in Psalm 15. In Psalm 15, uh, we find something that I think is just fascinating. It says in verse 1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And the rest, of, the rest of the psalm answers the question. So that's the question. Who can stand actually in the presence of Yahweh? Right? Well, it goes on to explain. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. It goes on to say in verse 3. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor, nor does evil to his neighbor, and does not take up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. These are all the basic lessons that, of faith, many of which we've seen lived out in the book of Deuteronomy. It goes on to say, uh, midway through verse 4, but he who honors those who fear the Lord. Let me stop there for a second. Who feared the Lord in chapter 9? The Gibeonites. Who is honoring their vows to the Gibeonites? The Israelites. Then it goes on to say, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does these things shall never want to know what courage is, if you want to be unmovable, unbreakable, it has nothing to do with your physical prowess, it has nothing to do with your intellectual abilities, it has everything to do with your spiritual condition and your connection to an almighty God. I want to focus just on, on that last statement in uh, verse 4. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does that mean? That means after you've made a promise, you keep it. You don't change. You don't go back on it, even if it hurts. How many of you are, are familiar with the story of Louis uh, Zamperini? Anyone? Uh, some of you? So recently there was a book uh, written about him. He was, uh, it's called Unbroken, and then there was a movie that uh, was made about him. Of course, the movie takes out a lot of his, it takes all of his salvation out of it, and takes a lot of the Christianity out of it. But it was a man who was an Olympic runner. And he, he uh, went to the Olympics in Berlin, of all places. And, uh, and then four years later, he was planning to go to Tokyo. Four years later, he was in Tokyo, but not under the conditions that he was holding. He wasn't there to be in the Olympics. He was there because he was fighting in World War II. And his plane went down in, the, in, in at sea only three people survived the crash, and they lived in a raft, I forgot how many days, but it was for like 45 days or something, living in a raft. Can you imagine that? It was during that time that he made a prayer to the Lord, and he said, Lord, if you, if you get me out of this mess, I will serve you for the rest of my life. He made this, this promise to the Lord. Even though he was not a believer yet, he was not saved yet. Unfortunately, well, fortunately for him, someone did pick him up 45 days later. Unfortunately for him, it was the Japanese. And he was taken 
to a Japanese concentration camp where he was mistreated. When they found out that he was an Olympic athlete, they, they singled him out and they tortured him beyond what I, I would even want to describe from here. And, uh, and the, uh, the colonel, Watanabe, also known as the bird, um, he was so cruel towards him. And, uh, and one day they came to him and they said, your parents think you're dead and we're going to allow you to make a, a radio broadcast announcement so your family knows that you're alive. He couldn't believe they were doing something so nice for him to let him do this. So they let him go, and he spoke on the radio, and uh, they did this. It was kind of a, uh, just a way to lure him in. And then afterwards they said, we want you now to say all these other things as well. And he looked at it and he said, but they're not true. And he said, well, just, just say them. But I have made it. A, a vow to my country and I cannot say something that is untrue that will damage the reputation of my country. So they point out, hey, wait a minute, look at all these other men and they've done this and these men are eating and they're, they're whining and dining the rest, they're just waiting out the rest of the world. They're whining and dining them. Why? Because they're willing to say whatever, whatever lies they put on paper. And he had a choice. Do I keep my vow? Or do I swear till it hurts and, and do not change? Or do I go back the easy way? And he chose to go back to the concentration camp, knowing that he would be tortured for that decision. Imagine that. What do we call that? What do you call that? That's a man who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I'm happy to tell you, he also kept his vow to the Lord. And he did go back, and he started at home working with children, and, and uh, uh, he he, uh, he accepted the Lord during a Billy Graham, uh, Billy Graham crusade. Any of you saved through a Billy Graham crusade? There might be a couple. But um, he was led to the Lord through a Billy Graham crusade and dedicated the rest of his life to serving the Lord. Isn't that a, isn't that a powerful testimony? Amen. What makes it so powerful? He swore to his own hurt, and he didn't change. Just like God... <coughs> made a promise in chapter 1, and he is keeping it in chapter 10. Now we see the Israelites taking their promises seriously and keeping it. And that's when things are working like they should. When we, as believers, begin to reflect the glory of God, then it makes a difference in the world. Amen? It makes a huge difference in the world. Well, now we see the long version of the story. As we, uh, as we come uh, back into, uh, if I can get this through, there it goes. Uh, as, we, as we come back into the text in chapter 10, let's read verse 11. And it happened, as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed by the sword. This is, to me, this is an incredible story for, for a couple of reasons. One, normally you don't hear about hail killing people, right? We've had some major hail here before in, uh, in Michigan. And when we talk about major hail, uh, it might dent your car and sometimes even break glass. And when it does, that's, a big, that's big news. A hailstorm that kills people actually kills soldiers with armor on. I mean, that's, that's a major hailstorm, right? 
Now, someone could say, but I just think this was just a, a natural weather event that happened, and it just happened to happen that, you know, on this day. That I, I don't think so. I don't see that at all. Here's the second reason why I don't believe that. The second reason I believe that is because warfare was done very differently in those days than they're done today. In fact, today, um, oftentimes, a lot of the warfare happens by, by people who are sitting at a computer somewhere, right? And then things are going, and we have long-distance weapons, and, and so you might be on a boat three miles offshore, and you're shooting missiles to at very specific locations, right? It's amazing what you can do. And so, but is that how wars were fought in Joshua's day? No. In fact, you might even go back to say well, World War II or World War I, where we have a little bit more long-distance uh, weapons, but not that long. We have, we have rifles that will shoot, and you, you might be shooting trying to take the next hill. So you're on one hill trying shooting at the next hill, and, and you're over there. And, and oftentimes, you might see weather patterns happen where, uh, where you see you can be in one weather system, and you can actually see a different weather system in uh, maybe a, a, within a thousand meters of where you're at. That happens on occasion. Remember when I was down in, in uh, New Mexico, we, we saw how a storm came in. You could see it coming for so long, and it was just going to hit us. So we just moved like a quarter mile out of the way, and we just watched the storm go right by us. You could, you could do that. And so I could imagine if the enemies were maybe a few thousand meters away, right? But how did they fight these weapons? These, did they have sniper rifles? Did they have machine guns? Did they, what did they have? They had swords and shields. Now, if you've watched any movie where people are fighting with swords and shields, what happens? You've got one side over here. You've got another side over here. And when they come together, they, they start shooting arrows at each other to begin with, maybe. And then as they come together and they clash, does it, keep, does it make a straight line? No, what happens? is that you have this middle ground where, where you have people coming in and they're going into battle and the next thing you know, you've got enemies behind you, you've got enemies to the left of you, to the right of you, you've got some in front of you, and, and, and now you've got a mix. You've got Israelites, you, you've got people from all of the other five armies, and they're all fighting together, and it, it's all mixed together, right? So you, you have this image in your mind. And then we have this hailstorm coming down, and it's, and it's hitting all of the enemies of God, but it's not hitting the Israelites. Think about that for a second. Think about that. I mean, imagine yourself, you're fighting, and, and maybe you're, you're fighting with this one guy, and, and, and you've got him, and then someone's sneaking up, and you see him out of the corner of your eye, and he's ready to stab you, and, and you think, uh-oh, this is it. And all of a sudden, wham! A hailstone knocks him in the head, and he's done. Wow! Very fortunate. How lucky, right? And you keep fighting, and maybe you get one guy, and you're going after another guy, and you're fighting him, and uh-oh, here comes someone, and you don't have time to get your short around, and bam, here comes another hailstone hitting him. Wow, twice in a row. I'm the luckiest man on the planet, right? And you keep going, and next thing you know, bam, another one. Like it said, more people died from the hailstones than from the sword. So the majority of people that you're fighting with, and you're winning those battles, aren't the ones you're seeing dying. You're looking around and you're seeing everyone die from hailstones. But guess what? You're not getting hit by them. Your body's not getting hit by them. In fact, we don't read of a single casualty on Israel's side. Not one. Now, how many of you think that's just an amazing, lucky story? I don't see it. What it really means is that we have a God who is so detailed 
that he knew every hailstone, when it was to form in the sky, when it was to freeze, and at what rate, so that it would drop at just the right time. And even though he could, he's looking down, he's seeing all this fighting going on, he's looking down, and he's making sure that every hailstone hits its target simultaneously. That's our God. Think about that. That's the God that's on our side. I don't know about you, but that sends a chill down my spine. I remember uh, uh, we used to run Algonquin trips. It's a, a canoe trip. I think I've mentioned them uh, multiple times. In fact, we're going to take the college agents this year to go on, a, on an Algonquin trip. You might not want to go after you hear the story. But, um, <laughs> but there was one time uh, that the, the, the team was out, and uh, we're miles and miles from, from the nearest road, and a storm happens upon, upon us. You can't escape the storm out there. And, uh, and it starts lightning, and you can't get away from the trees because every, there's trees everywhere except for in the water. And the water's the last place you want to be there in one of these storms. <laughs> so, so there's lightning. The kids set up their tents, and they're sleeping in their tents. And one, one time, in the middle of the night, we heard a loud crack. I mean, that lightning hit close. We knew it was close. And it hit a tree, and the tree fell right between two of our tents. The branches on one side had came inches from one tent. The branches on the other side came inches from the other tent. Okay. So everyone was freaking out, as you can imagine, right? And they were just freaking out. And I remember Pastor Hall, the, the youth pastor, talked to him, and he said, Look, wait a minute. Think about this for a moment. It's the same God who could direct every hailstone in Joshua 10 is the God who chose exactly where to fall that tree. And the more they thought about it and they, and they realized, you know what? They were just as safe right where they were as anywhere else. They could have been back home. They could have been at, at home in Michigan and enjoying their nice warm bed, which is a lot of them were, were wishing that at the moment. But they, but they're just as safe right there in that storm as they were back home safe in their beds. Were they not? What was kind of cool was back then in those days, one of the popular songs was Rich Mullins' song, Our God is an Awesome God. You know that song? Our God is an Awesome God. We heard the kids singing it, but they changed the words. And we heard them singing, Our God is a Lumberjack. <laughs> we loved it. You know, it kind of became a tradition around the youth group. But Our God is a Lumberjack. Why? Because he is precise. He knows exactly what he's doing down to the details. And he fell that tree exactly where he wanted to fall that tree. Right? Just like every hailstone here hit its intended target. Is that the God you want on your side? That's the God I want on my side. But you know what? That's not the only miracle we find in this passage. That's the small one. That leads up to the big one. Right? That's just the small one. Rarely do we find God performing two major miracles at once. This is one of those passages that I can't think of any others where he did that, but uh, here we find it. Let's, uh, let's, let's read in verse, uh, oh, I forgot to put the picture up there for you, sorry about that. But let's read in verse 12 through 15, the second miracle. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said, in the sight of Israel, son Stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this 
not written in the book of Jasher. So the sun stood still in the midst of the heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. The Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Wow. Think about that. The sun stands still. Joshua says, sun stands still because we're winning and I don't want the sun to go down today. And God said, okay. Sun stands still. Now we all know that the sun doesn't the sun stands still anyway, right? He's talking in the normal language. You know, just like we, we know that the earth goes around the sun, right? We all, we all know that. And, and it wouldn't surprise me if Joshua knew that. But we still call it sunrise and sunset, don't we? Right? So, I, you know, as I read some of this, people try to use this passage to prove that, uh, that, that the Bible is fallible and all this kind of stuff. They don't get it, right? They just don't get it. Um, as, as I read this, and, and, and the, the big question that comes uh, to my mind when we see this happen. Uh, the first thing, I'll be honest, the first question in my mind was, was really? Anyone else think that? Really? I mean, did God stop 6.6 trillion tons of gravel and water spinning at over 1,000 miles an hour, talk about earth, just so that the Israelites could defeat their enemies? I mean, that's a complicated question, and so I hope this doesn't get too deep, but, uh, but here's my answer. I hope you can understand. Here's, here's the answer to that question. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I believe it because it's in God's Word. That's why I believe it. I do want to share, however, that, that people mock at this. They laugh at this. They say there's no way. Um, I, I did hear uh, once recently where... Uh, um, and I don't have all the details on it, so I, can't, I, I, I didn't, couldn't find any primary sources, so I didn't want to cite it as, uh, as fact, but where they, someone had gone back and looking at stars and some data events and said, well, there's, there's a, about 23 hours and, and uh, 20 minutes missing somewhere that we don't understand why, I'm thinking. It's, I'll say, about a day. And, uh, and then someone else later came by and said, well, we found that it's actually 24 hours because this and that, and they came up with that. And I'm thinking, well, there was the story of Hezekiah, too, where he, when he said, uh, make it go back 10 degrees on sundown. That's 40 minutes. <laughs> so I don't know what it is. I, I don't trust the scientists enough to know, but I can tell you this. There's enough information to show this really happened. In fact, did you know that there are historical long-day accounts in multiple places in the world? Not just in Israel. Did you know that? In fact, I, uh, I did find, um, in fact, I put the website there. By the way, this website that I, that I got this is from a critic who doesn't believe in the story of Joshua 10. But he's having to at least be honest enough to admit this information, and it is actually funny to watch him try and wiggle out of all of this, right? So, so this isn't from a Christian site, or this is not someone making, up, making this up. This is from uh, from the enemies of God, what they have to at least admit to, that in ancient Chinese writings in China, we find, we find a story of an extended day. By the way, some of these are extended days, some of these are extended nights based on their geographical location. But we find that in, uh, in China. All, also, if you go to Peru, if you go to Peru, the Incas also have a story about an extended day. Go to the Aztecs. In Mexico, guess what? 
an extended day. What else? And uh, the Babylonian and Persian, there's other floods of, of stories of an extended day. The one that the, that the historians hate the most is Herodotus, the historian, in Egypt as well. They hate that one because they love to rely on him because they, they were able to confirm so much of what he said. He talked about an extended day in the Egypt tradition. What does that tell us? Well, I don't trust in all of those sources, I'll be honest. I don't trust in all those sources, but come on. They do back up scripture, do they not? So, to go back to that question, do I really believe that God stopped 6.6 sextillion tons of spinning gravel and water? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. The world evidence, or the world gives evidence of that, and we see God doing his thing. Right. Think about it. If you were to take just a car going at 55 miles an hour and have it stop, what happens to that car? It smashes, right? 6.6, 6 trillion. I can, it's a number I can't even imagine. And we're spinning it over 1,000 miles an hour. We don't recognize it because it's momentum now. We've, we're moving with it. So we don't, we don't feel it. Just like you're in a car, if you're going 55, you, you feel like you're, you're sitting still, right? Unless you're in my car. It does bump a little bit. So. But I'm too cheap to get shocks fixed, but, but yeah, you don't feel it. But we're moving at over a thousand miles an hour right now. And man, for it to stop, that would cause a major problem with all of the gravel, all of the water on the earth. But, but we have a God who sustains every atom. He can stop it all at once. Nothing happened. It just, from the appearance of the Israelites, the sun just quit moving. The sun stood still. That is the power of our God. Well, let's put it all together as we come to the conclusion of the message. As we put it all together, we began with the promise of victory. We saw that there was a stipulation. Then God put them to the test of obedience, and then we saw the result. The result was what God did. Now, if we put that into modern-day understanding, application for us, you know what? We have the promise God, God will provide the victories for us. We still have that promise for us, that God will provide victories. The stipulation really hasn't changed. The stipulation is obedience. Obedience to him. The test of obedience, what was the test of obedience? That they kept their vow. They kept their vows with them. So our, if you have that test of obedience, that promise keeping, and then what's the result? God comes through every time. And just as God is faithful to keep his vows, we can be faithful to keep our vows. What about you? First question, what victories has God promised you? I'm going to camp on this question for a second. What, what victories has God promised you? Because when, oftentimes when we talk about blessings and curses, and we, we start to think about material blessings, and, and, and that's really not exactly what we're talking about. Uh, but what, what promises has God promised you? Or what victories has God promised you? Did he promise you wealth? They promise you that if you become a Christian, you'll be rich. No, we're probably all living proof of that, right? Right? That is what he promised. But we, did, we do find in Philippians 4.19, it says, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. 
We also do find out that we're, we're storing up treasures, as Jesus said, treasures in heaven. The treasures here aren't really worth that much. Moth comes in and eats, eats our clothes. The rust comes in and destroys our precious metals. But, but, the, but the riches that God has for us are eternal. Has God promised us to be sinless? Once we accept Christ, we no longer fall into sin? No. Once again, we are living proof of that. There might be some rich people in here that could prove me wrong on the first point. I don't know. But I guarantee you're all sinners. Right? I am. We are. And so we see that we're all, we're all sinners. But did God promise us power over sin? He sure did. Romans 6, verse 22 says, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. God's given us. When we, when we think about the promises that God's actually given us, wow. And when we think about how great God is, we realize we can, we can see it happen. And I'll do one last one. Health. Has God promised you good health? No. There are churches who believe that, and they, they say if you do what is right, then, then whatever your illnesses are, uh, that uh, we can cure them. And, and so, but God never promised us health this side of heaven, did he? In fact, he could call me to die today. And that's okay. Because I don't need, if I die today, it means I didn't need life today. I need, the, the, I, I need eternal life. Right? But John 10, 27-29, what does it say? It says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, those are real promises. When we think about the victories that God has given us. He has promised us victory over sin. He has promised us victory over death. Those are promises you can claim. So start with that. What victories has God promised you? And then the second question, have you been living up to the stipulation? Another way of putting it, are you keeping your promises even when it hurts? Are you, are you living up to what you've told God you would do with your life? Well, it doesn't mean you won't fail. When you fail, there's opportunities for repentance. We sang about that this morning. If that's you, then take courage. Because God is faithful. He will come through. I hope that, that Joshua 10 has increased your confidence in God. It's done that for me. It has been a reminder of the confidence that we can have in God. But there's a stipulation. We have to be obedient. We have to do what he's called us. Let's bow our heads for a moment and pray. And in just a moment, I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond. We'll, we'll sing. And there's, there's really three different responses that I'm looking for. And you can come for any one of those. For one, number one, there might be some in here who don't have any of those promises. You see, all of those promises that we talked about are just for believers. Just for people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I would guess in a size, uh, in a group this size, there's, there's got to be some in here who do not know for sure that they have these promises. They don't have the assurance that they're going to have eternal life. They don't have these assurances. If that's you, I've got great news for you. You don't have to leave here today with any doubt about where you'll spend eternity. If that's you today, when we sing, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to come forward and you can just come talk to me. And I'll, I'll, I'll send you and direct you to someone who can show you from God's word how you can know for sure you have eternal life.
Second category of people, there might be someone here, and you haven't been keeping some promises. Whatever it might be, there's, there's something in your life that you know isn't right. And today is a call to repentance for you. You can come forward and you can repent. You can ask Jesus to, uh, to forgive you of that. And he will do exactly what he said in 1 John 1, 9. If you, forget, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And today you can make sure you are right with God. And that God is on your side. Third category, there might be some of you who you have been living up to all that, you've, that God's asked of you. And you, you've, you've passed the test. Today is an opportunity to expect great things. Remember that the God who sent the hailstones, the God who stopped the sun for his people, is there to support you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for your word and the encouragement it brings to us. Lord, there might be people here who, are, who don't know you. I pray that today would be that one day that changes their eternal destiny. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, may they not leave this building without knowing for sure that they're going to spend eternity with you. Lord, there may be some in here who, who feel like you've been distant from them. But it's because there's something in their life that you're convicting in their hearts right now that they need to come forward and get that right with you. Lord, remove all obstacles in their hearts so that they would get that right with you today. And Lord, for those who are trusting in you, knowing you're on their side, but maybe they've been disheartened, wondering if you're going to come through or not. Maybe, maybe trust in you, Lord, knowing that you are going to come through in miraculous ways, if need be, to give us every victory that you've promised to us. Lord, we thank you for being a promise-keeping God. Help us to be a promise-keeping people, I pray in Christ's name.